I probably should not have drank before the show. <laughs> hey dear, come to Frog here, and I would like, if I may, to take you on a very strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and we is your host collectively. <laughs> I'm Adam Campbell, being joined by the very beautiful Jesse. How are you, my dear? Doing great. Yeah. And uh, I'm not kidding about the beautiful thing. You can actually go to ninecentspodcast.com and find out. <laughs> lovely, lovely lady. No, it's, I paid somebody. That's a model. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a lie! <laughs> Photoshop. It's all a lie. Well, it is November 2nd, and we do have a fantastic show for you this week. We are coming right off of a couple big fucking deals. Uh, Halloween, which is, like, mind-blowing. That was my mind being blown. And the greater magic episode. So, let me ask you, Jesse, if I may, Mm -hmm. what did you do for Halloween? Actually, I didn't, like, do any rituals or anything. Like, I was in such a good mood all day Mm -hmm. that I didn't, like do anything other than just enjoy the day i dig that yeah did you go anywhere did you dress up at all nope nope nope. no handout candy or anything uh we got some in case the nieces or nephews came over but nobody came over we don't live in an area that people would hit would trick-or-treat so like the only people that would come over would be like looking to kill you or something exactly (laughs) yeah people in the woods Maybe they want some candy. No, they have axes. That's too bad. This is what I hate about the modern interpretation of Halloween as I live it. Is that it's it's very much uh, not even, I would say, a tenth of the people that I remember crawling the streets door to door when I was a kid are out on the streets now. And so when I'm walking around with my, for example, um, this last Friday with my daughter and my buddy's two kids, <clears throat> because they had me go out with their kids because they're too fucking, I don't know, lazy or preoccupied to enjoy the greatest fucking child day of all. But anyway, I enjoyed it. Um, and so we were walking around. It was just so sparse. And we saw this group of super... Uh, I don't know, super sexy teens walking around in outfits. And I was, I was actually a little bit frustrated because we, there weren't like children (laughs) running around. It was, it was preteens and teens running around in like hyped up, you know, outfits. It was just so frustrating. I wanted to get that solid experience of running across old schoolmates when you were a kid going trick or treating or, you know, running across just some random cool outfits and having a little commentary. And there's always that really wonderful... And I don't know if this is something that you've ever experienced. But, uh, like, my experience of Halloween was very much everyone is fucking cool. Like, it doesn't matter who you run across or how tough they try to be in day-to-day life. When you're dressed up in a costume going house to house, everyone's fucking cool. Like, like yeah. everyone. So I just... I didn't get that sensation this year. And it just progressively, the older my kids get, 
every year progressively it gets sadder and sadder and it is damn depressing and when one thing i miss i dating myself here i'm sure but nobody bought a halloween costume you didn't i mean you might go to a craft store to buy pieces of it but nobody you didn't buy a mask nothing everything was made by your mom <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> I miss that. I mean, freaking yeah. mothers were freaking creative back then. Yeah, the I, idea that you could actually sew. Yeah, my, <laughs> like, my, my one year my sister went as a scarecrow and I went as a crow, and my oh, mother wow. stayed up for nights for weeks cutting black paper into feathers that oh she my could, gosh. you know, tape across the front of me so I would have feathers on my chest. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that no, that is a lost art for sure. I'm sure regionally there's a couple people still, but like my wife doesn't even own a sewing machine. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think that's kind of normal now, which is a really strange thing because that I feel like that used to be a staple mother purchase when I was a kid. I, I seem to remember my mom going through a couple of them in my youth, so. Yeah, whatever fucking happened. So Halloween, uh, you just hung out home, enjoyed the day. I think that's great. Yeah. That's nice. As long as <laughs> as long as you're not uh, succumbing to others' interpretation of what Halloween is and you're owning it on your own, I think that's always great. Um, yeah, like I said, I went over to my friends and it was a weird, weird experience. Like for me, it's very much all about dressing up and living vicariously as my kids, you know, scream trick-or-treat uh, at the fucking <laughs> doors. I, I absolutely just love it. I adore it. I love the entire... For me, Halloween is equal parts... <laughs> equal parts... Uh, pillow sack full of candy, screaming trick-or-treat, and walking the cold, bitter streets going door-to-door -door for as long as you possibly can for as late as you possibly like that that's the fun that i used to have and now i'm i'm sort of you know obviously as i said before living vicariously through my children doing it in a much sadder way because there's no one else on the damn streets but us um but also i've had to sort of um uh cut that with many more horror movies so <laughs> All of this month of Halloween, I've, I've gone out of my way, you know, we decorate as soon as October hits, and then I, as much as possible, get my kids to watch scary movies with me, because I just want to build up the excitement of Halloween in and of itself, you know, I just, it's, I take it much more seriously than Christmas or anything like that, um, which, yes, as a Satanist, I still have my kids celebrate Christmas, so fuck off, um, for those poopers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... It's just, it, it's, such, it's so much fun watching my kids get completely fucking terrified out of their mind over shows that I just love, love, love so much. So I, I had this really wonderful moment. I, I didn't even make a note about this. I just remembered it. Um, when my son and I were watching The Exorcist, I guess he had heard about it or he, he started watching fractions of it at a friend's house or something. So I asked him, what do you want to watch tonight? And he said, The Exorcist. And I was like, giddy fists in my face. Like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm so happy that you chose The Exorcist. And he's, you know, he's 12. And so it, he... He's sort of that prime age where you still are afraid of a lot of things that you don't know about or understand. So we started watching The Exorcist, man, and it was the extended director's cut. So they added in a bunch of extra stuff from when you people, I'm sure, remember it as a child. 
And so she was walking down. The young girl was walking down like sort of backwards. I remember that uh, scene. Yep. Down the stairs and he <laughs> lost his shit. He was so scared. <laughs> he covered his face and he squealed out, please turn it off. Please turn it off. Uh, and so, you know, I did. I didn't make him sit through it and stuff, but we ended up watching some other horror movies um, that weren't as, I guess, scary for him. But there was this really wonderful moment when we were talking about it later and he was asking, how did she get... Um, to be the way she is. I was like, oh, well, she's possessed by a demon. And the story of the show kind of leads you to believe that it was a Ouija board that did it. And, oh, by the way, did you know that I've made my own Ouija board and it's in my room right now? And he's like, really? Can I go see it? And I started telling him about stories about me actually creating the Ouija board and and using a soldering gun to, like, having to go to the Home Depot and get the scrap of wood and cut it unsanded all right and get the soldering gun and uh, make all the... Uh, wonderful letters and symbols in the corners and stuff. And he was, it, it was just this really wonderful sort of one-on-one -on -one experience that I haven't had with my son in a very long time. And it was really great because I was sharing things that I was excited about that I was obviously interested in. I lived the experiences and I was telling him about them, how I would convince people to to cut themselves and bleed all over this Ouija board because it would add more intensity and open up the gateways to, you know, just all these really fun ways that I would fuck with people. And he was genuinely interested in it. And it was just such an exciting moment for me. <laughs> like I had this wonderful connection with my son over horror slash occult paraphernalia. It was so fucking cool. I feel like as the older my son gets, and I've said this in other places before, I don't know if I've said it on the show yet, um, I always expected, I knew it was in the mail, the day that my son would not want to hug from me in public. I knew it was coming. And when it happened, for the very first time, I never knew that it would hurt so much. As a father, it just, it really hurt that he didn't want to be associated with me like that, you know, in a, a loving father-son way in public. I get it. I went through the same thing, but I just didn't expect it to hurt. And so when that happened, it really kind of wounded me as a parent. You know, you just don't expect stuff like that. And then I get moments like this every once in a while that I just, you know, I, we're still there, you know, as a father and son, we're still connecting and firing on all cylinders. And it's really great. So I had a really wonderful, wonderful fucking Halloween season. Um, speaking of... The Greater Magic episode was released last week. If you all have not heard it yet, I do encourage you to check it out. Megas um, Gilmore and Magister Rose do a really wonderful job of informing and educating on creating and customizing your own rituals and speaking to rituals that they have created uh, in the past. So it's definitely worth checking out. Jesse, did you have a chance to check it out yet? I did. It was great. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird because <laughs> I... Uh, when <laughs> I go through these, uh, like I listen back to the episodes and there was this moment, this window in it where I heard myself being the total tool dork. Like, that is so cool. <laughs> like I heard myself in that sort of infantile voice. I was like, oh my gosh, I am such a fucking dork. <laughs> Why in the fuck am I acting like this? Like a total nerd. Like you... 
I, you know, you do something for so long, you expect yourself to come off in a certain way, and then you hear it back, and you're just like, oh no, <laughs> hand in hand in palm, just shaking your head. Oh, I feel like a fucking idiot. <laughs> that I, I had a couple moments in that episode. <laughs> no one could ever accuse you of being pretentious. Think of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. Uh, well, we haven't even talked about this show, and I got some other stuff I want to talk about. Okay, so uh, let's go ahead and go run through what you're going to expect in this episode besides what we've already ranted about we're gonna head this thing off with i dream of jesse of course jesse is here uh, episode 19 what are we calling this one kitsch camp and vintage collectibles whoa it's a whole lot to cover yeah. i say that as if i haven't already heard it and i have <laughs> <laughs> i wonder what to expect <laughs> uh we're gonna do a little informal blah Infernal Informant directly thereafter. And this is an article, um, it's not even really an article, it's more of like uh, a note. Uh, your turn, Gilligan, a little note that a listener, thank you so much for sending it in, sent to us. We're going to talk about that a little bit. I thought it was interesting, and uh, hopefully we can have an interesting discussion about it. And man cured of arachnophobia after doctors remove part of his brain. Misleading headline. But uh, I can't remember the moment why I wanted to talk about it, but for some reason I put it up there. And I've been on a binge today. I found myself with a couple hours with just my wife and I, which is fucking awesome. And we just binge watched the first part of this documentary. And uh, Long Way Round is what it's called. And we're going to talk about that at the tail end of the show. So look forward to that. Uh, before we dive into I Dream of Jesse, one last note. I've been putting out... I say putting out. I put out two. This is the second one that I put out. Little uh, sort of cutting room floor clips of this show. Things that either I can't fit into the regular cycle of the episode or um, I just think are, are better suited to a sort of one-off uh, added bonus to those of you who follow Nine Cents on social networking circles. So I did this little cutting room floor video on Adam's Road Rage. I haven't done a video like a live video of these before, and so this was sort of a test to see if it was something that you guys would want me to do, continue to do, uh, if it actually, if I could pull it off at all. So it was a little bit of juggling on my part, but if you're interested, go check out the YouTube channel for Nine Cents, and you'll see a little video of me ranting and raving about an interview, which genuinely did actually piss me off at the moment. Like when I heard it, I was like, oh, come on, this is fucking dumb. And I, I was compelled. I was compelled by the power of Christ to give it to you. <laughs> a little exorcist job there. Um, the power of Christ compels you. Uh, well, let the power of Christ compel us to I Dream of Jesse. <laughs> Even Jesus listens to Nine Cents. I don't know if you knew this. <laughs> he really digs Jesse. All right. Jesse! What do you want? Well, first, Jesse, I'd, I'd like you to address me as master. I, I am your master, after all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes, master... That's better. Now look, I've got guests coming over tonight, and I want you to entertain them. What do I look like, a belly dancer? Oh, I, I assume that was part, I mean, the outfit, it, it kind of suggests that you may be used to dance. Listen, the gin put me in the bottle, he forgot to add the preservatives. Now the outfit may be wrinkle-free, but what in it ain't. 
You don't like it, call the number on the bottle and complain. I know I'm not the only person who visits yard sales, flea markets, thrift stores, antique boutiques, pawn shops, and even Walmart in search of crap I don't need. But I don't just buy any crap. I've got standards. Old is better than new, for example, and ornate is far better than plain. Beside my keyboard is a paperweight pen holder in the shape of three fish leaping from the water, done in the ornate style you'd expect a Chinese dragon to be carved. On one side of my pen-holding, paper-wrangling fish is a pile of papers. On the other side, just lying on the tabletop, is a pen. So clearly I didn't buy this small, heavy carving out of a concern for wind-strewn documents or a need to have a ballpoint perched at the ready. Why did I buy it? Well, for starters, why does anybody buy anything? Since the 1950s, the culture of the United States has been one of consumerism. Marketing's everywhere, and marketing tactics just keep getting better. My particular penchant for ornate vintage trinkets is largely due to my brain's reaction to one of many aspects of human nature that marketers exploit, granting greater value to an object based on its scarcity. We can enjoy an object in two ways. One is simply to experience the object. I'm not even using this pen holder, so clearly I'm not enjoying it on that level. The lamp with the pink glass shade with the beaded trim in my bedroom, however, gets used all the time. And I love reaching over and touching the beads when I go to turn it off, hearing them rattle for a moment as I settle in for sleep. That's experiencing the object. The other way to enjoy an object is just the thrill of possessing it. And here's where scarcity comes into play. If there were 100 beaded lamps for sale at Walmart, I still would have bought one. The paperweight... Well, actually, yeah, I still would have bought one of those, too, because it looks really cool. But the cheap genie lamp you'll see me holding if you go to 9centspodcast.com and click the link for segments and then the link for I Dream of Jesse, that lamp, no, that was totally a case of scarcity influencing the purchase. I found that at a yard sale. It was the only interesting thing at that yard sale, and they only wanted 25 cents for it. I don't doubt thousands of these were stamped out at one point in China, but I don't think anyone's making them anymore, and if they were only asking a quarter, it's likely that the owner would trash the thing if it didn't sell, so really, that one day in that one place was probably the only opportunity I would ever have to possess that genie lamp. Scarcity can make possession imperative. Now, thrift store commodities are the same quality or better than what you'll find at Walmart, but they are necessarily scarcer and far cheaper. Yard sale commodities are scarcer still and comparably priced to thrift stores. So if you, like me, fall victim to this automatic response to scarcity, you might come home with some really useless crap. Face it, once we want something, our brains will generate all kinds of rationale for possessing it. Scarcity is both a cue to buy and a rationale for buying. But I could just as easily say the color of an object would make perfect decor for the living room, or say it reminds me of something I had as a child. Whatever we use as rationale really doesn't matter. If we're rationalizing a purchase before it's made, what we're actually doing is shutting down our rational brain before it can think things through. Impulse buying works by flooding the brain with statements of, I need this because, in rapid succession before the brain can get through a thought of, I don't need this because. We do it because of the thrill of possessing things. Now, if we're rationalizing a purchase after it's made, that's different. That's all about keeping a consistent image. We rationalize all of our behaviors in such a way as to create a narrative of a consistent self. Consistent people are reliable, confident, self-assured. 
They know what they want in life and are self-directed and can get it. So of course we want to count ourselves among them and to be regarded as consistent by others. Inconsistent people appear fickle, fake, immature, and they appear to be slaves of fashion. We definitely don't want to appear inconsistent. But this need to present ourselves as consistent has two potential downsides. First, every behavior has to be incorporated into this narrative. I meant to do that is our mantra. Second, if we learn others perceive some characteristic in us, we incorporate that too. If you tease someone and then point out what a good sport they are, they'll be a better sport about taking your teasing. Now bring this back to shopping habits. So I buy myself some flea market junk that's maybe old, probably ornate, more about style than substance, and I put it in my home. I recreate my self-image to include being someone who likes these kitschy campy trinkets. My husband and our guests see this stuff and also take away that I like kitschy campy trinkets, and so they give me more as gifts them that has gets after all, and so the collection grows. So then I come to a crossroads. I could put all that crap in a box in the basement and never speak of it again, or I could write a podcast episode about it. Nothing solidifies an aspect of your self-image so strongly as going on public record about it. Now I'm committed. The danger is that I might not really be enjoying it. It's tough to get yourself out of a consistency trap once you're in it, because it's your own brain working against you. You want to believe yourself to be consistent. You insist you meant to do that. But here's two questions to ask yourself, and only listen to the most instantaneous answer you feel yourself giving. One, if I had it to do over again, would I make the same choice? Two, am I behaving like someone I'm not? Now for me personally, I probably wouldn't get that genie lamp if I had to do it over again. That really is a cheap piece of crap. But the other kitschy campy trinkets, this paperweight for example, they do make me happy. That's not me pretending to be something I'm not. Leaving behind the reasons we buy anything, I want to talk now about kitsch, camp, and vintage collectibles specifically. I'm not the only person drawn to this useless junk. Different people might enjoy it for different reasons, but the fact that people are buying it well, it proves that on some level it's not useless. There is power in kitschy campy crap. One way to understand an object's power is to know its history. In 1931, Aldous Huxley wrote a book, Brave New World, in part as a reaction to the Industrial Revolution and the advent of mass production. In the book, he envisioned a society where people were bred into specific roles by technicians who ensured the social order. Huxley was part of the British aristocracy, and for him, one of the difficulties to overcome in losing the last vestiges of feudalism to create this world was that somehow, someone had to control the masses. He invented Soma, a hallucinogenic drug that everyone would be encouraged to take. The idea of Soma became iconic. The previously accepted remedy of bread and circuses was only meant to distract people from their misery. Soma would actually make them happy. Skip ahead and cross the sea to 1950s America. The economy was booming, mass production had been around for decades, and now people had more time and money on their hands than they knew what to do with. Others had seen this coming, so as the newly affluent wondered what to do with their time and money, advertisers stepped in with the answer, and the consumer culture blossomed. This was when Kitsch was born. Mass-produced objects with more emphasis on style than usefulness. The objects were cheaply made, intended to be thrown out at some later date when they went out of fashion. They only existed because bored housewives had money to spend and were looking around at what other bored housewives were spending it on. Kitsch is straightforward evidence of herd conformity. 
To the intellectual elite, kitsch was the soma for the masses. So long as there were quality goods and kitsch, the well-to-do could maintain a degree of separation. So long as there was Shakespeare and Beethoven for the rich, and comic books and rock and roll for the rising middle, all was well. Except the rising middle wasn't just reading comic books or rocking around the clock. They were reading Shakespeare and listening to Beethoven. The middle class of the 1950s was taking in all the fine art there was at the time, and they were enjoying kitsch. And within a decade, they were creating camp. In 1964, Susan Sontag published an essay titled Notes on Camp, and if any of this is piquing your interest, it's worth looking it up. Both kitsch and camp can refer to physical objects or performances, books, film, etc. For the sake of this episode, I'm going to stick to just physical objects. Both kitsch and camp emphasize style over substance, but camp is deliberately gaudy, garish, tacky, mawkishly sentimental, and silly when it should be serious, serious when it should be silly. Camp is beyond parody because it already goes to the extreme. Mass-produced plastic crucifixes are kitsch. Black velvet paintings of sad-faced kittens dressed as clowns is camp. I could quote half of Sontag's essay, but I'm limiting myself to just two quotes. The first is actually a few lines I'm piecing together to explain the relationship between camp and vintage collectibles. Quote, It's not a love of old as such. It's simply the process of aging or deterioration provides a necessary detachment or arouses a necessary sympathy. When the theme is important and contemporary, the failure of a work of art may make us indignant. Time can change that. Time liberates the work of art from moral relevance, delivering it over to camp sensibility. Another effect. Time contracts the sphere of banality. What was banal can, with the passage of time, become fantastic. Thus things are campy not when they become old, but when we become less involved in them and can enjoy, instead of be frustrated by, the failure of the attempt. Unquote. I use this quote because there are gaudy, tacky, mawkishly sentimental things you can buy today being mass-produced in China for sale in Walmart. Not everything gaudy is camp, and not everything camp is old. The second quote from Sontag is also a rather long quote with many lines removed for brevity's sake. Sontag states more eloquently than I ever could why camp is so powerful. Now bear in mind, Sontag was a member of the intellectual elite, which had sought to distance itself from the kitsch-buying masses, yet she was drawn in by camp. Quote, One cheats oneself as a human being if one has respect only for the style of high culture, whatever else one might do or feel on the sly. Camp is the consistently aesthetic experience of the world. It incarnates a victory of style over content, aesthetics over morality, of irony over tragedy. The whole point of camp is to dethrone the serious. Camp is a solvent for morality. It neutralizes moral indignation, sponsors playfulness. The man who insists on high and serious pleasures is depriving himself of pleasure. He continually restricts what he can enjoy. Here, camp taste supervenes upon good taste as a daring and witty hedonism. It makes the man of good taste cheerful, where before he ran the risk of being chronically frustrated. Unquote. Kind of makes you want to go out and buy some campy trinkets now, doesn't it? But before you do, though, let's remember those evolved habits that influence our spending, scarcity and consistency. Understand why you're buying kitsch, camp, or vintage collectibles. Understand what they're for before you try to judge how scarce an item truly is. 
understand the difference between possessing an item and experiencing it. Kitsch and vintage collectibles need to be experienced. Camp, because of its power over other people, can be purchased just for the sake of possessing it. More important than scarcity is consistency. Be sure buying these things will fit comfortably into your self-image. Probably anyone can fit vintage into their persona. But kitsch does look dumb, and owning it will make you look dumb. Are you okay with that? Camp negates seriousness. Are you okay with that? I'm reminded of Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, whose character couldn't handle being called funny. If you've ever watched that movie and self-identified with Pesci, don't buy camp. You can probably get away with kitsch if you say it belonged to your dead grandmother and challenge anyone to make a joke about it, but don't buy camp. The point of camp is to amuse people. People like people who amuse them, and people tend to bend to the will of those they like. When you buy vintage, you're buying an authentic piece of history that can transport you to a different time and place. When you buy kitsch, you're turning your back on stodgy intellectualism and celebrating the rise of leisure. When you buy camp, you're buying magic. God, I wish my aunt hadn't thrown out those black velvet paintings of sad-faced kittens dressed as clowns. I would totally have those hanging in my living room right now. What's going on with Uh, in front of the You know Okay, this is uh, from NPR.org. Title is Your Turn Gilligan. Um, this is actually from January 25th, 2008. A long time ago. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically... What is coming... Okay, I'll, I'll read this part. Years after the show ended, its creator, Sherwood Schwartz admitted that each of the characters represented one of the seven deadly sins. Pride, the professor, anger, skipper, lust, ginger, and the rest. Uh, Gilligan was supposed to be sloth. But in closer viewing indicates that the island may well have been hell, and the red-clad Gilligan was the devil who kept them on the isle. Now, of course, that's because Gilligan's screw-ups would always thwart their attempts to get off the isle. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, so I read this, and I don't know about you, but I, of course, then made a list of sins and a list of characters and tried to pair them up, and I got to call bullshit on this. There's, there's no way. <laughs> really? Because, I mean, okay, they, he, they say right here that anger is Skipper. Okay, if, if Skipper is anger, who's gluttony? He was the only fat ass on the show. Ooh. And what would Marianne be? Point. I mean, she was like supposed to be all pure virginal, all American girl. What sin could she possibly represent? Oh shit! <laughs> See, <laughs> I didn't even take it. Oh man! Okay, uh, so you you didn't immediately do a data analysis on the whole situation. No, what I did, I I took it the opposite. Where I I read the the sort of sum up. Where I was like, okay, well, what if, what would you do to get off your own personal hell? If you were the only, the one thing in your way, what would, you know, would you be willing to kill off, for example, Gilligan, in order to get out of whatever situation you had yourself in? You know, that sort of, uh, as they put it in here, sweet-natured, well-meaning part of you that just sabotages your your goals or whatever. I didn't even think about actually doing an analysis of, of, of characters on the show. Um Okay, so what would so you had the you had Professor Marianne Ginger, obviously you had um, uh, Skipper and you had Gilligan, and then you had the rich couple. Yep. And that was that. Like yep. that was it. 
So Pride, was that the millionaire? Well, they say Pride was the professor. See, I can't see Pride as the professor. I, I, I'm kind of with you. I think this was bullshit. I think this was, they created this metaphor in order to pay off the idea of it being your own hell and, and sort of asking that, that yeah. final question. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice <laughs> idea, but it doesn't work. <laughs> that is awesome. The professor can't be pride. He was constantly like, I mean, he would, he was just, he would, I don't know. He would be ingenuity or intellect, which would not be a sin. It would be a virtue. Like he was the only person that actually was able to create possibilities. Like he was the lesser magic master there. Yeah, he he could build everything but a raft. <laughs> I do remember like the coconut radio and you have to ask yourself like why the fuck can't you do a raft <laughs> to get over the well, I don't <laughs> I don't get it. You can do a fucking radio out of coconuts. You can't build a raft. They could build right, so huts <laughs> with doors and windows and shutters, but not a raft. Not a raft. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> okay, well, absurdity of the series aside, it was wildly popular. Just speaks to stupidity of our parents' parents. Um, okay, so let's talk about what you would sacrifice within yourself. Um, have you ever been in a position that you just found Jesse I'm speaking to you yeah. have you ever been in a position where I guess alternatively I'd be speaking to my third person <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is um, have you ever found yourself in a position where you just seem to be your own worst enemy you just can't get over that whatever it is oh totally yeah so, have you ever thought about like a, a sacrifice you would have to make in order to get through it or how like how you would beat yourself at your own game i haven't found a good way because i can i there will be times when i know i'm just burying myself it's like some <laughs> part of my brain says to stop turn around you're going completely the wrong direction here and you're <laughs> just making it worse with every single word that comes out of your mouth at this point <laughs> and i still don't shut up yeah so, yeah, um, if you can find the thing to kill, uh, let me know. <laughs> I, I got to be honest. I think it's hyper self-awareness slash uh, obsessive compulsive <laughs> disorder awareness in oneself. I, I sort of anecdotally, I find myself in this position a lot when I'm, for example, if I have to work late and I want to leave early. Um, I always ask one of the account coordinators a question, which is the stupidest thing you could ever fucking do because they don't stop talking ever. And so they they sort of uh, toss a softball like, oh, my daughter would really love blah. And then my natural way of being is to, you know, humor them and ask a follow up, even though I don't I really, truly don't care but just because I want to be a nice person in the work environment, because I, you know, they are obviously tossing me a softball to ask that follow-up because they feel compelled to talk, but I want to leave. And so it, on, on like one side of my brain, I'm like, I have to get out of here right now. I'm powering down my computer. I'm collecting my jacket. I've got everything. I got my briefcase. I'm ready to leave. And then I say, well, how did it end up going? And I just know that that just makes you sit there for that much longer. Because no matter how close to the door you inch, like I've gotten to a point where I'm literally halfway out the door, the door is slowly closing between us and she's still fucking talking! Like she won't shut up about her fucking stupid retarded kids. 
Like that is, oh, it's just so frustrating. I'm like, okay, I'm on the other side of a pane of glass. That means I don't want to fucking talk to you anymore. And I can't help. I'm just compelled. Gilligan comes out and I have to ask the follow-up questions, even though I'm like closing the door at the same fucking time. It's insanity. I will have to say though, um, recently I have found myself more often than not starting to like, I, I feel the question formulating in my brain and the other part of my brain's like, shut the fuck up and collect your shit and get the fuck out. So I am getting better at it. See, with me, it's always when I'm angry. And I'm like mm. in an argument with somebody and I can see that we've reached a point where we're just talking at each other. There's no longer any communication actually going on. Yeah. And I know that's what's happening and I'm still arguing. And, I'm, and like I said, part of my brain says, just stop, just stop. Stop. <laughs> and I don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is a sadistic part of me, but I really kind of want to hear you be angry. <laughs> I feel like I'm angry a lot on this show. I don't think you're ever angry. It doesn't happen often, but I guess when it does, I just kind of, you know, part of my brain shuts down. <laughs> you just open the floodgates and you can't see them again. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I just love that idea that, and it was, to be fair, first um, clarified to me, I think primarily by the Satanic Bible, that this life is either a heaven or hell. It's how we make it. And so that idea that you're living in your own hell is by nature either your fault or someone else's. And so if it's your fault, in it, in order to get out of that, you have to have immense self-control or awareness. And maybe absolution, you have to have awareness and then control. But um, I, I always thought it was a really interesting notion. And then when the, the listener sent me this uh, little note here, I thought, you know, this would be really kind of cool to talk about. Because there's there's part of it saying, and, and this is kind of how I think of, of it, and <laughs> please let me know if I'm the only one. I, I see a, a large part of myself... Uh, is my obviously my strengths, but also my weaknesses, and what I'm aware of what I'm not good at, or the the little traps that I put myself into, um, or that I just tend to fall into a lot. So I think that I'm doing it, um, and so I I always think that like that that is who I am, the entirety of good and bad, as as I'm you know collectively perceiving it here. So if I was to uh, murder Gilligan within myself and allow myself unrestricted forward momentum, am I still really me? Like, I, I am partially defined by my limits and by my quirks. So am I still me or am I just, at that point, uh, some artificial cre version of me that, that doesn't have the, the natural hindrances that we all have? Like, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, that was rather heavy for this. <laughs> considering we started talking about Gilligan. No, actually, I mean, and the, the more we talk about I've read this and I'm like, ah, this is bullshit. But the more we're talking about it, I am kind of digging the island as hell, as a rut you get yourself into because you don't change. And yeah, no, I like where you're going with it. It's that That is interesting. So do you think that you would still be you if you were able to murder your own inner Gilligan? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
but then we we always have a consistent sense of self, don't we? Unless there's something like like seriously mentally wrong with us. Yeah, I gosh, I don't know, man. I I I I do in memory remember some and maybe it's just, you know, I I was I wasn't fully developed uh as a, a young man, but I remember parts of my uh youth where I I truly didn't know who I was because I was so different to different people. I presented myself um, for those people rather than as myself. I, I wasn't entirely sure of who I was. And, and so, you know, moving forward as an adult, I feel like I've, I've come to where I am and I'm very happy with the idea of self of what Adam is, but I, you never really, you for me, I never really know if that is really me, because if each experience informs you a little bit and allows you to grow, and in that growth, your perspectives alter and sometimes change dramatically, your behaviors tend to alter slightly, then you were never yourself in the first place, and you end up being yourself. Or if the idea of a self is a continuous growth, is losing a part of that good, or are you just sort of uh, in this continuous cycle of, of chaotic self, uh, I don't know, discovery and loss. Well, I'll tell you, they, okay, so here, most people, they grow up, they have a kid, and as their kid grows up and they're forced to be more and more of an adult, it's like a gradual change of, you know, responsibility and, and confidence in yourself to be able to take the responsibility. Now, mm-hmm. I don't have kids. But I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And so as they grew up, it's like suddenly I'm not just Jesse the party animal or whatever. Now suddenly I'm a responsible adult, even though I never went through that whole transition of having to be. It's just suddenly there's these little people looking up to me like I know all the answers. <laughs> and that was Aunt jarring Jessie. for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I dig that. It's like, wait, wait, what do you mean you're going to get in my car to go, okay, yeah, I guess I can take passengers. Um, need a, a booster seat? What? Yeah, is there a car seat, a booster? I don't, do I need to help you? Can you do it yourself? Where do the boundaries lie? Oh, yeah. man, it was, it's, it, it's, I've gotten used to it now, but at first it was really, it's like, okay, this is not me. I'm going to, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to pretend like I know what I'm doing, but this is not me. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, that that's why this article really connected with me is, is that it, it started forcing me to ask questions about my own life and whether or not I'm in hell. I don't, I don't think I am truly, but if I were, what would I do to get out of it? What would I be willing to do to get out of it? And then what were the, the repercussions of that decision? So I, I always like thinking like that. And so I, I really did dig this article. So, um, I guess to the audience, if you, want us to speak to any article like this or completely different, please feel free, send it to us and I will fit it into the schedule and we were talking about it. This this is, to be fair, quite a bit old as it was sent in and even older as it was originally released. So um, nothing's too dated. Let's talk about this next one. Um, man cured of arachnophobia after doctors removed part of his brain. This is from NewYorkDailyNews.com. So I, I found this because... I'm sort of a, shamefully enough, a book cover kind of guy. 
So I look at a book cover and if it pulls me in, I'll do a little investigating. And so this headline was the book cover and I did a little investigating. I was dramatically disappointed, but I still think that there's a conversation to be had. Uh, And so uh, the article kind of goes like this. So there's uh, a a guy who had uh, seizures and in order to stop the seizures, the doctors cut out a part of his brain, um, the amygdala part of his brain, which is linked to uh, fear and pleasure responses. And then immediately after, some music caused him to have like stomach lurching uh, effects and he found himself no longer afraid of spiders and so I this idea that by simply turning off or taking away a part of your brain can dramatically affect even something that you may have developed your entire life be it a fear of spiders or a, a like of a specific type of music and I thought that was a really interesting notion and so I, I thought maybe we could turn it into a conversation a little bit about um, sort of playing off the first article here. What about you? Would you be willing to turn off even though that there's there's consequences to that? Would it be worth turning it off? So, for example, in this article, he gets his amygdala taken out to suppress the um, uh, seizures, which do, as they say, stop. But then he has all these other um, little sort of side effects and some of them good and some of them bad. Um, do you think, do you think, uh, I guess in this case, science is a good thing that you can, uh, sort of trade one for the other? Jesse? Well, yeah, I, th- I think it's a good thing. I mean, first off, I want to say when I first, cause the, the title of it makes it sound like he had a, he had brain surgery in order to get over a fear of spiders, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. was not the case. It was for the yeah. seizures and this was a side effect. And I was very glad because I, I thought to myself, my God, what the, the biggest dummy in the whole world getting <laughs> his brain cut up just to get over spiders. Come on. Um, but no, I, I, I don't know what it's like to suffer from seizures, chronic seizures. Yeah. Um, from what I understand, it's, it's quite limiting because you can't like drive, for example. Because um, if you have one behind the wheel, that's it. You're dead and somebody else might be dead as well. Yeah. So, so I, it, I, that science can offer somebody something is great. You know, whether they take up the, you know, if if you can work your life around the seizures and you don't want your brain screwed with, I'm I'm totally cool with that. But if you would prefer to have the surgery and not have to worry about a seizure again, I'm I'm cool with that too. It should be your choice, and it's great that science can offer this choice. It's fascinating though the the side effects that come about. And, yeah, and that's what this article is really speaking to is like, okay, he, he's no longer afraid of spiders and for a time being he couldn't listen to music. And that's, that's just like, wow, neat, cool. I want to learn more. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I feel bad for him for the brief time he couldn't enjoy music, but it's just fascinating. Well, I really connected with this idea when it got to the end of the article and it was saying um, the reason why he wasn't or, or a potential reason why he wasn't a fear of um, afraid of spiders anymore was because of the panic response being tied to the piece of his brain that was removed, and I was starting to think, well, shit, if if he's no longer allowed to react, that in my opinion is an evolutionary safety mechanism, and that's jumping back and you know your sort of panic response, your flight response. If you don't have that anymore. 
are you are you worse off? I mean, maybe not in a safe society, but as a human being, are are you worse off if you don't have your panic response part of your brain? Because that's we evolved with that for safety and for existence. <laughs> and if you don't have that anymore, I don't I don't know if that's good or not. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds risky to put it mildly, but like you said, it's you know we're not living in the savanna where there's a snake behind every blade of grass and and maybe you know having no flinch is adaptive to our society i don't know it it really depends on how this guy's living his life yeah we'd have to see in a couple tens of thousands of years what I, i i really do like the idea of uh like you would i i would be afraid i wouldn't be able to enjoy horror movies like part of what i love about horror movies is that it does sort of add that res- revulsion element to you and if you don't have that part of your brain that triggers that you would just be sort of like watching it like that's interesting that's gross like you wouldn't have that oh shit like jumping or or covering your face or you would just be like oh yeah. that's disgusting that that's actually that's that, <laughs> see i'm i'm not a fan of horror fl- horror films like a lot of other Satanists. I like them, but not... First off, I don't like the gore at all. And secondly, mm-hmm. the jump factor is fun, but on second viewing, it, it's not there, you know? Yeah. So really, I'm much more into the psychological aspects of it. And I don't think that would have been affected. So if it were me, yeah, I'd still get into the horror flicks. Just <laughs> only the good ones. Yeah, yeah. Of which there are a few. All right, well, <laughs> interesting nonetheless. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the creature of Fija. All right, so this is uh, The Creature Feature. Welcome, everybody. I'm being joined once again by Jesse, the amazing Jesse, and we are going to be talking about a show that she has not yet seen, but I have, so it's going to be a wonderful discussion. <laughs> I uh, hate long it. Way oh, around. it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, Long Way Around, and, well, let me let me explain how I, I came to know about this. Um, Ewan McGregor calls it a documentary, but it's... And it kind of is, but it's not the traditional documentary where it's, you know, an isolated show. This is a series that they ended up producing as a documentary. So, um, first of all, Ewan McGregor is on my top five H&H. Are you, Jesse, familiar with that H&H? I don't know. What's that mean? Okay. So, this is something that I, I would like to claim to have created, but I don't know if, if I heard it somewhere or what. But H&H is a top five. Everyone has a top five list of people well, most people do, of people that they would like to get with sexually or maybe their partner's okay if it's, you know, if they could get with those people because they're so out of reach of normal day in day life. Well, I decided to take it a step further. So I got my top five heterosexual and homosexual lists because I'm bored and I like thinking this way. <laughs> so I have my top five ladies and my top five men that are out of reach, but if I ever had the opportunity to nail... That would be my top five. So let's talk about top ones. Um, I, I mean, I don't mean to get off on a tangent here, but I'm curious. Do you have a top one that you could give us? Uh, Johnny Jesse? Depp. Okay, for <laughs> men, it would be Johnny Depp. Do you have a top one female? Uh, I know you're not into girls, but I'm just for fun. Um. Uh, nothing. Nobody's jumping to mind. Really? Yeah. Oh, well. Well. 
Johnny Depp's in my top five, by the way. Okay. Um, so <laughs> also, so maybe we could double team. Um, Johnny Depp, that's a good one. Un McGregor is in my top five uh, for sure. I love this guy. He's so fucking cool. Ever since Train Spotting, I've dug this actor. Um, and then Obi Wan, come on, <laughs> he's fucking awesome. Uh, but I, I, I one, I, my ancestry is Scottish, so I feel like there's a connection. And two, he's just a handsome guy, and he's a fairly good actor, so. I was connected with him. Anyway, I saw him on a talk show and he was talking about this documentary that he had done called Long Way Round. And it's basically, he has this obsession with um, long distance motorcycling. And I love motorcycles and I love motorcycling. And so I thought, well, shit, I should check this out sometime. I actually found myself with some time to kill and my wife and I decided to check it out today. It's on Netflix, which is wonderful. And so you can sort of serial binge watch it at your pleasure. And what I first expected was just going to be your run in the mill. Well, I'm going to go from point A to point B. And what he was doing, the reason why it's called Long Way Around, is he's going the long way around Earth to get from London to New York. So he goes London all the way across Europe and Asia and Russia, all the way across the land bridge that doesn't exist anymore to Alaska, and then down and up into New York. Um, so he's all the way, as much as humanly possible, taking a motorcycle. And we're actually only to the part where he's actually gets back into Russian from Mongolia. It is a really, really entertaining show. I didn't know if it really would be at first. So um, it was created by Un McGregor and Charlie Borman, who's another actor who Un has, um, has worked with. And they are just sort of mates. You know, they met on an acting stage and just sort of became friends and decided they both have a love for motorcycling. And so they decided to do this and they got a bunch of sponsors and money and producers together. Um, like, uh, David, uh, Alexanian, if that means anyone to anything to anyone in Russ Malkin, but, um, they just get on their BMW bikes and go across and you're pretty much following them and experiencing the troubles and the people that they encounter. So it, what I love about this is it's very much in the same vein of Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations. Have you ever seen that, Jesse? Nope. Sorry. <laughs> Are you familiar with Anthony Bourdain? Not by name. Okay. So this guy is a former cook, a uh, bit of a writer. Uh, now he's a writer anyway, a former New York uh, just kitchen chef that goes around the world eating other cultures' food. And oh, then that guy. Delivering. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love the guy. I think he's super fucking rad. But uh, that's what this mo this show, this series, this documentary reminded me of. It's just someone that I completely admire and enjoy watching on film, experiencing the world. And what was amazing is that my wife and I were sitting here watching this, and they're going from London to where we are now, back into Russia, through Mongolia and Kazakhstan and stuff. And every single place that they went through, I know of a place in Utah that looks exactly like that. It was fucking insane. Like every single, and, and I've been, I've been saying this forever. Um, and, and to be fair, I've only traveled to, uh, Germany and, um, Switzerland in Europe. And then obviously across the United States, but like, this is the only place that I could genuinely say has a tiny piece of every single other place that I've ever seen. Like, in shows or out of shows. Like, Utah is amazing like that. And this is why I love this state so much. Like, literally every country they went in and, and the diversity in each of those countries, I saw mimicked in pieces of my experience with Utah. It is so fucking cool. And so it just it reiterated this idea that no matter where you go, 
of course, <laughs> there was much more colorful people than you're going to find in Utah. But the terrain is what I mean. Um, we have a lot of white people here, is I guess what I'm saying. <laughs> a lot of white, pasty, plain, non-exciting people. And non-interesting Mormons. Um, Sister wives. So, and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, lot, lots of... <laughs> Lots of dresses with pants underneath them, <laughs> I guess I could say. You don't find that a lot of other places. Um, but it, it was just, it's so amazing. It, you know, every place is exactly like the other. And people in general, um, I, I generally, I think most people are pretty retarded. But they're also the same in that they want the best for their family and they love their kids in general. And... I found this when I was in Germany. There was this really large Turkish population where I was stationed. And every single man I met, though they put up a front, this sort of masculine front that most men I meet put up, uh, as soon as either they saw my son or they saw, like, I opened my wallet to pay them and they saw a picture of my son, we immediately connect. They would start telling me about their kids. And it, it was just this parental connection that breaks down every single barrier and you just become another human being who loves their kids that wants to share uh, the experiences, the, the craziness of life that you're experiencing. And it, it, it's just really kind of crazy. And no matter where they're going, even in deep backwoods fucking Mongolia, they run into that exact same thing that just made me think of my own personal experiences with, with different ethnicities and different cultures and that we are so goddamn similar when you break it down and we like to create this division. We like to pretend like we're so different than every other person. Like we're the, the isolated special person and all of life is just your own personal movie that everyone else is a, a, a supporting actor in, but you're the star. And the reality is, is you're just another blip on the fucking radar of life. And every single other person out there is experiencing the exact same things you are. And instead of seeing that as a bad thing or as a mundane or banal thing, it's actually kind of wonderful because we're connected as a species despite our cultures, despite our, the different societies and different, um, uh, different countries that we're raised in or we're experiencing. And it's kind of cool in a way. Like, I, I'm not saying everyone hold hands and kumbaya, but that hu shared human experience is pretty goddamn profound when you think about it. Uh, yeah, I see it as a bad thing, honestly. <laughs> oh, shit on my point as usual. All right, so how is it about that? Well, I look at, like, the worst societies of the world where, like, they're slaying albinos thinking their blood or something is going to be a magic potion or... Wait a second, it's not? It's not? <laughs> I've got to fucking... i got to cancel that internet order. <laughs> that guy in your freezer better just bury him. <laughs> No, I mean, it's you look at the worst parts of the world and, you know, if I was racist, I might say we're superior to them, but I know we're not. And I know it's not just that they're as good as us. I know we're as bad as them. I, I guess I just take the pessimistic view of that. Yeah. No, I dig that. I, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. Um, and it's what <laughs> the duality of man I, I always play off of because... I, I definitely identify with that. But when I see uh, shows like this or I just run into personal encounters, when you're not, well, I, for me, I guess I'll say, when I'm not comparing large masses of people and instead comparing individual to individual, 
I see many more similarities than not. <clears throat> and so that's where I find myself connecting on a on a, a species scale with people. And that's for me, it's it's a really kind of it doesn't happen a lot, which is why I think it's so cool when it does. Um, it's just a really kind of neat thing. Like um, at work, I'll have someone come in whom I have never spoken to before and have zero interest in. Um, and everyone else thinks she is a total cunt. But for, and I say that word just because I know you're cool <laughs> with it being said. Um, I, said I, I said it at work about another coworker and a girl asked me not to ever say that again. So I was like, ah, fuck. I it's gotta such a cute word. <clears throat> I'm going to tiptoe around the C word, uh, but not here. Ha ha. <laughs> I have C word anonymity. Um, no. So I, I, I was expecting a total bitch, but then she started talking about her pregnancy and her newborn son, how it's driven her into a deep depression. I immediately connected. Like I understand exactly where you're coming from. I have experienced pregnancy from the other side um, from far too many women. So I totally understand what you're saying. I understand what you're going through. And we just sort of connected on that level. And it it made what could have been uh, an hour of forced interaction because of work a horrible thing. But it ended up being where her and I now have this really great back and forth. And everyone else is like, I don't understand how you don't hate this bitch. She's so fucking rude. I'm like, She's not rude to me. She's cool with me because I connected with her. So, you know, it, it I don't know, man. It's just every once in a while... You have these experiences that force you to reevaluate um, expectation or uh, information you have received from outsiders as being true because your experience can vary so dramatically as a human being. I don't know. That's that's what this show forced me to do. It forced me to reevaluate all that. Yeah, I, I, I actually I had a, a similar experience in the uh, supermarket the other day. Because generally speaking, the people that work in the supermarket are not, you know, high high level <laughs> achievers. Yeah, yeah. And but god damn it, there's this one guy who works there. I only ever see him bagging. And he has the most positive attitude and the not like a not like a sharp, witty sense of humor, mm-hmm. but just a really fun sense of humor. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter if what he's saying is it's never stupid. Sometimes it's goofy, you know, yeah. but it's just such a pleasure to be around him. I don't know how he ended up getting stuck working in a grocery store because his personality is so magnetic. But yeah, yeah. for some reason, he's working in a grocery store, so something's not quite right. <laughs> yeah, there. yeah, he's not firing on all cylinders for yeah. some reason. <laughs> No, totally. And again, like, you know, these little experiences, it's definitely not one size fits all. It's You're not going to be able to connect with every other human being, nor would you ever want to. But it is refreshing when you do find that just random. And maybe the only reason why you enjoy him is because of the uh, rarity that you encounter him and not these long days of just him and you, you know? Yeah. So it's it's amount of exposure that matters. It's the individual being able to put up their lesser magic facade and run through the conversation with you or the experience. You know, there's a lot of variables that go into it, but it's kind of cool when it happens. And, and uh, though I, I would never want to connect with everyone that way, it is refreshing when I'm pleasantly surprised by it. Um, anyway, the, the show itself, Long Way Round, it's definitely worth a watch if you enjoy documentaries or you enjoy travel shows or you enjoy Ewan McGregor, which if you do, he'll achieve, baby. We got something in common. Um, yeah, I dig it. Do you like Ewan McGregor at all? 
Oh, he needs to change his name. Cause, really? Because you'd call him Ooh for short. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> you ew. short Hey, Ooh. <laughs> no, I, I dig him. I dig him a lot. Other than the All name, right. yeah, he's good. <laughs> I think, uh, gosh, I, I would have to jockey for position between him and uh, Johnny Depp. Like, on an individual level, I know nothing about Johnny Depp. Other than he's he's quirky and he likes kind of quirky things like I do, but I don't. It's not enough to know if I would like him personally. And so when it when it comes to like my top five guys I would have sex with if I was gay or drunk, <laughs> I don't know if he would be above Ewan McGregor. I feel like I feel like I'd give Ewan McGregor a pass before I'd give Johnny Depp a pass. Yeah, I, I, I honestly think Johnny Depp. If I ever actually got to know him, I wouldn't like him at all. Yeah. He just What what about him uh do you like? Well, I just like the way he looks. Ah, yeah. But as far as like listening to him talk or even I I'll even say even watching him act, I don't think he's that great an actor. <laughs> yeah. I you know, I he's a he's an entertaining actor, but yeah. he's there's only a few roles that he's done that have been like, you know, performances that would wow you. Yeah. So, mm. wow. So when you think of him, do you think of him as like the award acceptance Johnny Depp or a specific movie Johnny Depp? Um, I guess award acceptance. Yeah, that's just sort of just rock and roll style look. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's not like going to a particular movie or anything. Yeah, I have to agree with you. That I like him best as himself dressed Where, up. But. Whereas um, uh, Christian Bale, yeah, definitely Batman team. Begins. <laughs> that's awesome. See, I would go American Psycho with Christian Bale. That's another good one. Yeah. Yeah, I I really really dig Christian. I, awesome. I just I wouldn't go Machinist. <laughs> no, yeah, no, hell no, god damn, you just might as well fuck a bag of bones. <laughs> there was nothing there, and maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> but then again, I mean, there's a guy. He's a better actor. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure, he's got way more chops than depth. I don't feel like he gets the props for it, but for sure he does. Mm. Interesting. All right. All right. We're, well, hey, how about maybe we can play this game? Let's play the top five H&H. And if you can bat around in your head what top five guys and what top five girls you'd be down with, even though I know you're not into girls, I, I think it'd be fun next time we have a chat. Let's, okay. Uh, let's talk about that. All right. We'll do. I'll try to narrow mine down to five. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many ladies I would like to visit. <laughs> All right. Uh, And that's going to do it for another show, everyone. Yep. It's all about sex every goddamn time. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed it, and we would love to hear from you. Visit the website, 9centspodcast.com, and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. If you got an article, send it to us. If you got a topic, send it to us. We're always interested. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. And those are the only places that you're going to get the cutting room floor clips, as I have time to release them, to be fair. So, if you want to check out a little bit extra, check those out. Um, you know what? I am remiss here. Where can people find the amazing Jesse online? Uh, they can read my blog at Drafts for My Satanic Windbag at WordPress.com. Dot wordpress.com, sorry. Uh, they can follow my tweets at damned lucky or they can email me idojesse at gmail.com. 
All right, definitely check it out, people. She's got a lot of amazing content that does not make it into this monthly segment. So do yourselves a favor, jasperfromasatanicwindbag.com, and uh, shoot her an email. Let her know how wonderful she's doing. And Or, you know, if, if you disagree with her. Yeah, yeah. yeah start a, I'll take start angry fight. emails. All right, you can download the show Mondays via the RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9cents via iTunes by searching 9cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. I've had one or two people note that they've had trouble updating their iTunes feeds. If you are ever having trouble with uh, downloading this podcast, first and foremost, delete your feed and resubscribe. That is the first thing you should do. And if you're still having trouble, shoot me an email and we'll try to work something out. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And remember, the only reason we're doing this show is for entertainment, a little bit of education, maybe even a little infernal enlightenment. So do yourselves a favor, listen, tune into every show, and tell a friend. This is what keeps this show going, your correspondence. Let's keep it up, people. And once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Jesse. Jesse, I don't get to speak to enough, Jesse. And until next week, I don't even know what that's like, a last name. <laughs> I don't get to speak to you enough. I wish I could speak to you more than I do. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Until next week, hail Satan! Hail Satan. Bye. Uh-huh.